Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's weekly podcast on graphic novel and comics publishing, recorded wherever we are, and we are, you know, at least three places, around the New York City metropolitan area. I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly, Editor of PW Comics World, and Editor of The Fanatic, PW's twice-a-month comics and pop culture newsletter. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. I'm Heidi McDonald. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Beat at ComicsBeat.com, and you can find us on Twitter at at PWComicsWorld. And I'm Kate Fitzsimmons. I'm the podcast producer, and you can find us online on Tumblr at PWComicsWorld.tumblr.com. Don't forget, you can subscribe to more to come on the Apple Podcast app, uh, on Google Podcasts, and on Stitcher, and on Facebook. We're at Facebook.com slash PWComicsWorld. And don't forget, you can use any of those platforms to leave us a note and give us a comment or give us a rating, giving us a thumbs up, give us some feedback, let us know how we're doing. We love to hear from our listeners. Why remember, don't you? And remember, you know, don't forget, you can pick up all our comics coverage at publishersweekly.com slash comics. All right. This week on More to Come, the big two, a bad deal for creators. Well, we're going to talk about that. The price is wrong. <laughs> More to come on comics pricing. Uh, streaming is good for graphic novels, and we're going to tell you why. NFT, WTF, and we'll talk about all of those, uh, all the, all the, that alphabet soup there. New York Comic Con update, repop in the house, and awards season. So, big two, a bad deal? Yep. Well, I guess this all got started a couple of weeks ago, and I think we actually alluded to it on a previous episode where we mentioned that Ed Brubaker mm -hmm. was um, moaning and complaining a bit about Winter Soldier. Um, and, understandably. Uh, well, understandably. But, you know, yeah. the, the show is streaming on on Disney Plus right now. It's a huge hit. It's more streamed than WandaVision, which is interesting because that got so much – uh, attention and but yeah, so this is just more popular and yeah, Ed sent out something in his newsletter about him, you know, when the show started airing that he just did, you know, he was a mixed feelings. He he loved creating the character, the Winter Soldier, co-creating it, um, but because he didn't have a lot of participation in it uh, monetarily, he felt a little weird. And so, um, a couple weeks ago, he went on uh, the Fat Man podcast. I forget what it's called. It's it's um. Kevin Smith and our, our good friend oh, yeah. Mark, mm -hmm. Mark Bernadine do a mm -hmm. podcast uh, it, on live live streaming. It was three and a half hours long, so it didn't oh, quite, because Kevin Smith because Kevin Smith, but th that did not quite approach the unit I call a Justice League. Uh, so you know, it was it did not reach a Justice League, but it was still quite long. But uh, you know, one of the beats writers, uh, uh, Tamar Dar. Um, was listening, you know, we, mm. we were talking about it and I said, you know, tomorrow, if you want to give a listen to this, I, I heard that Ed is getting a bit salty. And so bless his heart, uh, Tamar did listen to Ed's, um, story on here and he got the best headline of all times. Uh, you know, Ed was very, um, um, honest about what had happened and he mentioned that he, it, you know, oh, yeah. I mean, he, he was, I, I will say, I think that he was, um, he was humorous. I mean, he wasn't like he was bitter and angry. He was yeah. talking in a humorous way, but obviously these things were painful to him. And, but yeah. the, yeah. the, the nut thing was that, you know, he has a little cameo, a little teeny tiny cameo mm -hmm. as an extra in Captain America Winter Soldier. 
And he said he gets paid more from the residuals for that than he does and the residuals for creating or co-creating the Winter Soldier. And um, this really got a lot of people talking when this headline hit uh, for some reason. I mean, there is there is a small complication here, which, of course, is not in any way uh, change his point, which is, technically speaking, he didn't create Bucky Barnes. He just brought him back from the dead and made him the Winter Soldier. So technically speaking, he didn't create the character, but yet, let's be real, he created the character. Well, but you know, legally speaking, yeah. But you talk about that, don't you, Heidi? You talk I, about I the derivative characters, yes. character yes. and and contracts, and the like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I want to mention Steve Epting, who was the artist who drew the Winter yes. Soldier, um, because, uh, you know, he's the co-creator of this version of Bucky, and obviously whatever Ed gets, Steve Epting should get too. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, I'll say it's, um, I don't know. Why did this, I'm looking at my story and I see, I put the image up at the wrong size. So I got to fix that. But, um, <laughs> anyway, I'll fix that after this podcast. And editor's um, work is never done. It, it, it isn't. It isn't. You know, the internet <laughs> is a very strange place. So, um, but yeah, I mean, this kind of got me thinking and it is true that it is a derivative character. And, you know, I've heard from a, a few, I think when we mentioned it the first time, uh, that Ed was, you know, um, voicing his, 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 his just sadness. I would say yeah. sadness is probably yeah. the proper word over this. A lot of people were like, oh, he knew what he was signing and it's a derivative character and, you yeah. know, just he because gets, he accepts it doesn't mean he's happy about it. Correct. But I think when he, he told the full story on this podcast, I think a real, a fuller picture emerged. And I, I do think, you know, he had a lot of petty little gripes, but he's really, he's really right to have these petty gripes. Like, like he said that at the, um, he says he turned down the check for a thank you for Captain America Civil War, uh, cause he found the tiny amount to be such an insult. And then, uh, there was a, a premiere for Civil War and he, him and Steve Epting couldn't get in. Uh, they had to text, uh, Sebastian Stan, who plays Bucky, the mm. Winter Soldier, to get into the party. And, uh, you know, that is just the kind of petty, but really annoying thing it that tacky. comics, it's tacky, it's tacky. Thank you, Kate. Mm. That's exactly the word. Mm. It's just tacky. And, you know, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, Hall H, what happens in Hall H, and, you know, like, like Hugh Jackman talking about Len Wein, the co-creator sure. of mm-hmm. Wolverine, and, you know, a lot of comics creators do get their Hall H moment now, and they get to sit in the spotlight. You know, I remember Steve Lieber telling me when they did a whiteout, a panel for whiteout, which is a graphic mm-hmm. novel that he drew. Great graphic he, novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same thing happened. This is a long time ago. Same thing happened to him, though. He got kind of like, like he didn't have the right, could he forgot. Maybe he forgot it. But anyway, he had a hard time getting into Hall H to see the panel. So, uh, you know, the more things change they don't change and um so you can understand ed being petty but i I brought it up um i think the thing about this is that you know ed brubaker and his real partner sean phillips moved over to image because you know they've been doing a ton of books at image Mm -hmm. and graphic novels and uh you know listen i had a little correspondence with ed Mm -hmm. and he he mentioned that um he just wanted me to mention if I talked about this, and I think it's very true that their graphic novels that they're doing for Image are huge sellers. And yeah. uh, actually, mm-hmm. the two, the two that they did last year uh, were 
the the top ten for image. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you know, not bad. But um, you know, the point that I was getting at is that Marvel has no interest in keeping an Ed Brubaker happy. You know, like they did Icon, and uh, then they stopped Icon when Disney bought mm-hmm. Marvel, and that that was a line to keep Bendis and Mark Miller and a couple of other people happy, and they don't do it anymore. And um, you know, that's it. Goodbye. Sayonara. Yeah, that was. Well, I mean, it, that's really short-sighted of them because they have some participation in that IP, and now uh, no more Ed Brubaker IP for them. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, this is such an ongoing pro, uh, issue. The cop, a talking point, however you want to describe it. I mean, since these movies have have created. This explosion of characters and actually a reordering very often of their priorities within their original context they were created. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, Bucky was never uh, uh, considered to be the kind of uh, plot-driving character that he's become in the movie universe. Mm-hmm. I mean, the things that these characters – characters like, you know, once again, just to cite my ancient, you know, character because how old I am – I mean, characters like even Iron Man now, um, um, these characters were never had the, the incredible broad impact in yeah. their original conception uh, and in their original iteration that they do do now. So you have to wonder, and it's, I think it's perfectly acceptable for, for the creators, even for someone like Ed, who, who uh, this is the derivative character, a character which was created by Jack Kirby and I guess Joe Simon, uh, but still – what he brought to it, and this is in Heidi's article too. This isn't an, an insight by me. This is in your piece. These characters are a bit more than simply, you know, uh, just a derivative twist on right. what they well, were some, in the comics. Yes. Well, the Winter Soldier is a really, really clear example. Oh, yes, because exactly. there, there was a ban on. There was a Bucky ban. At Marvel for years, okay? He was one of the few characters like Uncle Ben and a couple of others mm-hmm. that don't come back, okay? And it was just really, you know, and that's great. I mean, I think that was commendable of Marvel. And and then, it, this is the early 2000s, this post-9-11, it's a very different world. And, you know, Brubaker had this really great take on how to bring Bucky back as and as the Winter Soldier. And even though it's Bucky, and of course it builds on the fact that it's Bucky, still it's completely that concept that Ed had. He's a Cold War yes. assassin who's been on ice. And, you know, Epting's drawing is the concept art for the way yes. in the movie. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's just as plain as day, you know, even with the hair, you know, I mean, everybody, everybody yes. loves Sebastian Stan and uh, understandably, so do I. But, um, you know, he's got the long hair and the mask, everything about it, you know. And look, I'm not putting down the Russo brothers or Kevin Feige, obviously Sebastian no. Stan. It's collaborative. But right. the spark is Brubaker and Epting, period, the end. So, right. I mean, it seems like it's worth a decent residual. Uh, for sure. Yeah. Um, now, now and you also, but I should also say, you also have an inch, uh, to, <laughs> to leap forward to the point, your larger point about how do you develop your career and how artists conduct their careers. I mean, you have a, also your article talks about Paul, someone like Paul Pope, who from the very beginning, he immediately parlayed the, his, his success in, you know, the, the world of the big two into other areas of the comics world, both indie publishing, manga, 
uh, Paul's an early example, but really what we're seeing now is a whole universe of artists, particularly artists that have had some success, like Ed Brooker, in their ability to be well, especially their own platform. Well, I, you know, it's funny because, I, I mean, I, I haven't talked to Paul in quite a while. And, Me neither, you know, but yeah, he's, he's out there. Yeah, he's got a lot of sight, but he's got an interview. that, and I was Yeah, which was great it. to see. And he talks about how... Uh, you know, I think this is what I was at Vertigo 20, 20 years ago, but, uh, he did a couple mm-hmm. of books for Vertigo, uh, Heavy Liquid and 100% that great are kind books. of, they're classics. They're you know? great. I mean, they're and, great if you haven't and read. Great. And, and Paul Pope is absolutely one of the most influential cartoonists of this whole century thus far. You know, Agreed. I mean, he has a huge <laughs> influence on people and a great creator these are great books and you know vertigo is no more and the very commendably and want to you know very you know commendable that marvel gave all the icon creators they had a deal yes. they gave everything they gave everyone everything back so you know i'm not here to shit on everyone at marvel and dc because yeah. in a lot of cases they've done the right thing it's just these are big corporations so so they gave uh paul back his um his, you know, heavy liquid, 100%. He took it to Image, and you know, now they're they're published at Image, and um, and then I, the funny thing is that he also did Batman Year 100 for DC, and I mentioned, you know, of course they still own that, and you know that book. Well, is they're great. not giving a Batman. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? That book is out of print. You're kidding. No. It's it's, it's of- really brilliant, and someone ought to make a small movie about that book. Right. But oh, totally I that, see of, that's amazing. Totally out of print, yes. You think that they would at least wow. put it out digital? I mean, it costs well, it them digital. nothing to put no, it, it out digital. digital. Of course, but you, you can can't buy get it in print. Digital, but you can't buy it in print. We but you need to say print because the colorist. Oh, who's the colorist's name? Uh, uh, Villarupia. Villarupias. The color in that book yeah, is it's amazing. Fabulous. Yeah. It's a great, uh, it's a great uh, Batman. It should be on the short shelf yes, of takes on con- Batman. It should absolutely. So, but you know, I bought this up in a long ago piece that I wrote almost 10 years ago and, you know, about Alan Moore. And, um, you know, now Alan Moore is pretty happy. He's puttering around, doing whatever he does. I'm sure he's one of the happiest people in the pandemic because he can just putter around in his garden, not have to see any, you know, callers. But, um, uh, you know, there's, he moaned and groaned about about DC and everybody's like, oh, he's such a whiner. He's so, you know, entitled Alan Moore. Why is he always complaining? And it's like, like, do you think, uh, a happy Alan Moore would have made more money for DC than an unhappy Alan Moore? Absolutely. Of course. Yeah. Now, I mean, Alan, I mean, I, it, I mean, there is a, a, an issue around the standard, even for DC, a standard book publishing contact, uh, you know, contract. I mean, when a, a you know, a rights don't revert back, and this is the issue that the Watchmen ran into, if it never goes out of print. And, the, you know, Watchmen was published at a time uh, when it was assumed that the book would go out of print. Yeah, but, you know, it's, uh, yes, but I, I mean, my point is, like, if, you know, Dave Pilkey had done Captain Underpants for Scholastic, which was a huge hit. Okay, huge, huge, huge. Mm-hmm. And then they were like, oh, we're going to do some Captain Underpants toys, but we're not going to give him any residuals. That's a good idea. Let's do that. And when he found out, he was angry, and they were just like, oh, well, you know, well, that's the contract you signed, Dave. Well, that's um, a- Sorry about that. And, uh, you know, do you think that would have happened? I don't think so. I don't. Well, you're, well, you're absolutely right. And, of course, beyond so. beyond Watchmen, there are a whole other uh, but are you, Right. But I'm just trying to say, issues. it's like when you have a great, you know, in the book publishing world, when you have a Dave a great Kirk, creator, you want to keep them. You keep them. A Stephen King. Yeah, this is true. A J.K. Rowling, even though she's a transphobic piece of crap. 
But, uh, you know, she sells a lot of books. But, you know, um, I, I'm just saying it's like these authors, you tend to keep them happy so that they'll continue to do books for you and you'll both make lots of money. So you would think. Um, you know, I just think for DC at the time, and I guess I'm making an excuse for DC because there, but really there is no excuse. You're right. Um, there, the way they handled the, the future of what he could do as a book, as a book author, they just didn't seem to see it. Right. Because well, yeah. the treatment, the treatment that they received, they, I, I, I guess they just didn't realize what they had. Yeah, I don't, I don't it was did. so, it was so early. You know, yeah. it was, it was, it was a while ago, but you know, it's like Alan Moore thought he knew more than Siegel and Schuster. And it turns out he didn't. I'm sure Ed Brubaker thought he knew more than Alan Moore, and I guess he didn't. Now, I did also in my article, I mentioned James Tiny in the fourth, and I feel like yeah. he's, you yeah. know, he's pretty young whippersnapper, and he got into the industry quite young, and you know, he's in his, I think he's in his early thirties or so, but um, you know, he's really trying to do it the right way. And him, you know, we had him on the podcast a year ago when mm-hmm. he created Punchline, which is like the Joker's, you know, sidekick henchman or whatever. And he, you know, well, he created a new character, a completely mm-hmm. new character yeah. for DC, which is very unusual these days because most creators do know if you create a new character, you know, it's gone. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think James had a smart idea that if he did this one character and uh, that would give him enough equity that he could do other things. And he's come back to yeah. DC's black label doing a creator own book. And now he has his own little publishing company. He's doing his own horror magazine. And so there's an interview with him um, on comics F- XF mm-hmm. where he talks a lot about this. And he has a newsletter as well. And so, you know, I think, I think everybody's learning the lessons of the previous generation yes. and building on it. Yes, and we're also looking at a little handshake. That there's there are options, and artists are starting to learn, and there, and there are options beyond, you know, the big two or even New York trade book publishing, mm-hmm. or 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 put it this way, gen, your, the future is a portfolio. You know, if you can if you can get it done among cycling through all of these publishing options. Yes, exactly, and. Um, but you know, I did want to mention that, that Ed Brubaker has a really successful model at Image, you know, with Sean Phillips. Yes. And, uh, they did a two, they, they've been doing, you know, they did miniseries now, they're just doing direct original graphic yeah, novels. Yeah. They have one Pulp and Reckless, they have another one coming out. Yeah. Um, My Heroes have always been, um, Junkies, I think was one of them. Anyway, you know, yes, they yes. turn out which these. One, uh, which one, which is an Eisner. Which one the Eisner? So, so, you know, he's figured it out too, but, um, some stumbles along the way. Yeah. And we're and actually just as a, a tease, we're working on a an author profile of of Ed and Brian Heater's writing it. So it's, it's we're working on it as we speak. So yes, coming up, folks, Excellent. based around Excellent. reckless. So very yeah. good. All right. Uh, so the price is wrong. Did I skip oh. something? No. <laughs> This no. Right. Well, we were going to talk about my streaming story because that kind oh, of. Oh, let's do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's true. Well, we can do that. Yes. Sorry yeah. about that. Well, no, because the, these are all related. But, um, yeah. yeah. So I wrote a story for the fanatic about, uh, streaming. And obviously there's a lot of, sh- you know, Winter Soldier is one of them, but there's just a lot of shows, uh, that, in, that are very successful on streaming, like The Boys. Or even, you know, the end of the bleeping world by Charles Forsman a while ago. Um, you know, the boys, WandaVision, all of these, they're all based on comics. No, there's really, no, and you really talked about the challenges that publishers face, uh, who, who know, I mean, 
basically in the book world, and as more and more comics uh, publishers recognize that they're in fact in the book world as well, TV shows, movies can in, can create incredible demand uh, for books if you can link them directly to the film uh, or TV shows. And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing these streaming shows and an explosion of them that are adapting comics and graphic novels. And Heidi kind of looked at what publishers have to do. And, and some of it is really like a fire drill uh, when, okay, they find out when the series is being released. They've got to make sure that the books are in place which may mean going to uh, public, uh, printers in the North America, going to printers in China. There's a, there's drawbacks to that. Um, to make sure the books are there when demand spikes. And, uh, you know, one of the things is that as this is rolled out, I mean, we're in the midst of these streaming wars, but, you know, Netflix is super secretive about when their shows come out, you know. Yeah. And uh, so in the early days, they would like, you know, Eric Reynolds said he had like a week's notice to, that yeah. the show was dropping on Netflix. So, you know, it's not like, you know, they could plan ahead, but they couldn't plan. They couldn't quite pivot on that dime. So, um, yeah. If they go to Chinese printers, which where most graphic novels are printed, are in China, you're talking, what, three or four months delivery yeah. time. Yeah, it could be months. Well, North America, well, you can shrink it down to, to three or four weeks. And, you know, Marvel uh, had some problems with that because they obviously had, uh, for WandaVision, they had both The Vision, the book by Tom King, and um, uh, House of M. Uh, yeah, which is yeah. about uh, the Wanda, the Scarlet Witch, and both of these sold out right away, and they're just now the reprints. They they just they just hit comic shops at the beginning of April, um, you know. So it was like a month where where stores couldn't get these books. So oops. And uh, and then of course you also talk about how at, at Dynamite um, um, making the the uh, making the decision to print in North America. Yeah. Uh, along with Fantagraphics and Image Comics doing the same mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, actually, you know what? I have a note that you have to add. You know, Dark Horse had some issues with the Umbrella Academy because they ran out of books. And uh, But they, I got a note from one of the publicists at Dark Horse to update the story that they did do some reprintings in North America. So uh, I'll have oh, to send did, that did to you. Okay. Yeah, if you can okay. update the story we can with update, that, that sure. would be great. Yeah, so uh, right. yeah, that got – a lot of publishers paid a lot of attention to that story for some reason. Hey, so, um, it's like, you know – and it, but in <laughs> Also interesting, as you ended the story, was that, okay, hey, we had to scramble to make sure we had our books ready, but now we have relationships that we're looking for down the road. Well, I think it's interesting because there was a lot of things that people told me off the record um, that at, I think, again, when this started, the streaming war started, which is about four years ago, let's mm -hmm. say, four or five years ago, uh, there was a really big um, – separation of church and state and you know amazon has a lot of comics content they signed a big deal with robert kirkman but i will say apparently originally it was like oh we sell books based on shows that we have on amazon prime cool i didn't know that you know <laughs> <laughs> but there's a way to kind of like goose that thing you know <laughs> well, now I think you figured it out a little bit better yeah. but it was yeah. a learning curve for them as well uh amazon also did that up uh, you know what's really interesting is that um on speaking of uh netflix is that the first show from the from miller world will finally be launching jupiter's legacy oh yeah so okay there's more to come folks more to yeah. come yeah uh, um now we were also talking a little bit about the pricing of yes. i mean it was an yes, interesting yes. article about the pricing of comics this is an ongoing issue uh in the direct market uh, the two ninety nine 
standard. You know, I mean, you know, I'm old enough to remember when comics were a quarter. Um, I was just after the 10 cents era. I'm just after that. But, uh, but we're also, you know, we're, we're seeing comics, uh, 5.99 is, uh, uh what uh, apparently gonna be cropping up more and more. Yeah, but for 40 page comics, they, they're yes, making exactly. them a little bigger. So, right. Yeah. But they're doing the thing that a restaurant does when they can't afford <laughs> to sell you food for cheaper, where they make the plates bigger so you feel like you're getting more. Like, it's, it's a thing. Yeah. yeah. But this is a continuing issue. But the, 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 it's interesting, though, because, I mean, in the article, actually, that um, we were reading, and I, unfortunately, I don't have it in front of me. Uh, I like to give them a little credit. Um, um, well, the story was that sci-fi, by, sci-fi. No, it's sci-fi. sci-fi by Mike uh, Avila. Okay, good. Yeah, uh, yeah. Awesome. Who's awesome? Yeah. I love Mike. Uh, uh, you know, on the one hand, of course, obviously, we want prices to be stable. Uh, uh, this is a this is a, a high consumption uh, medium. You want to be able to just pick it up every you know every other week, every week, uh, and if the prices keep up, that 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 can interrupt that experience and the storytelling. Um, on the other hand, we also want to make sure that uh, writers and, and artists uh, and publishers and retailers are are making enough money to sustain this whole thing. So the two ninety nine um, price point seems to be uh, kind of almost symbolic now. It seems to be fading. Oh yeah, that's wrong. Yes, I don't think it's anybody's old. selling yeah. comics for yes. two ninety nine anymore. Uh, the five ninety nine standard is troubling some people. Um, uh, it's troubling to me. I mean, it's it, troubling to me, and that's a good point. So, so Kate, please jump in at any point. Well, I but mean, I'm I just feel saying, like this. There are a lot of forces at work. Well, oh, yeah, Kate, I understand. Kate, I'm not. I'm not saying. Oh, this is morally wrong or anything. Yeah, I'm no. Saying that at least until we have significant inflation, once you hit over five dollars, people start thinking. You know, I could get lunch at McDonald's for that. Sure. You know, or uh, one more dollar and I could buy an actual book, right? <laughs> so. <laughs> I have to laugh, but go on. I mean, if you buy a cheap book, but still. No, no. <laughs> you know, you, it's, I, I, I... It's, it's, you know, if you are not like super hardcore into a book. Once you go over five bucks, it crosses into the line of like a more significant purchase. And so I think people will think more carefully about what they buy. Well, I think, you know, in my own case, when I was buying comic books, I noticed that they were usually the same price as a roll of toilet paper. Um, and so definitely more than a roll of toilet paper. Right. But I was going to know what I was going to say is that that diverged and it actually diverged. You know, Paul Levitz has talked about this quite a bit, uh, but this actually ties into what we were just talking about, because once the Marvel and DC in the early 80s established royalties for creators, the prices went up. The prices of the comics. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reason why it's five ninety nine is well, I mean, you know, AT and T has X billion dollars of debt. That's the main reason why it's five ninety nine. Yeah. But um, you know, in order to pay royalties for creators, um, they, you know, they're a lot more than a roll of toilet paper now. A roll of toilet paper mm-hmm. is like a dollar fifty now, which is really cheap when you come to think of it. I remember paying thirty five cents for roll of toilet paper way back in the day. But um, anyway. 
you know, I mean, royalties don't come out of thin air, and yep. uh, that's oh, yeah. one of the reasons why these uh, prices are are high. But they're not the only reason. Yes, they're not the only reason, and also. Um, you know, I feel like the periodical comics format has been endangered. You know, it's in danger of becoming a collector format and not a reader's format, which yep. I think actually has happened. Um, yep. But I feel like Random House stepping in kind of reinvigorated a bit. But if these are the prices we're going to be looking at, uh, I don't know, man. It's a lot. No. Well, I, I agree. Well, what are Marvel's prices but, like? Wait, Kate, well, Kate, what were you going to say? What I was going to, going to say is that Random House stepping in may make it less expensive for them to yes. get those comics into the comic stores. So once – because the price you hold in your hand is not just dependent on what goes into the pocket of Marvel. It also is dependent on what the expenses are of the comic shop. Yep, correct. So if the expenses for the comic shop per comic go down, it may be possible to – keep prices lower or inch a little bit lower if they aren't paying diamond shipping. Free um, freight, so baby. Free freight. Free freight. <laughs> it's not nothing. 50% so discounts. It's it's huge. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see uh, what impact that makes because, I mean, you can laugh at like, you know, oh, shipping, like whatever. But, like, look at how many people only buy from Amazon because the shipping is free. Absolutely. If they have a membership. So... You know, we'll see. And we'll see. I think it'll retail, make an impact. Yeah, absolutely. Comics retailing, like book retailing, is a razor-thin margin business. Right. Every percentage point you can get is 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 great. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I don't um, mean, look, I don't yeah. think – I mean, we've talked about this on this podcast. You know, it's one of our perennial topics. But I don't feel like the comics periodical has been a particularly – Attractive package to put, you know, it, you know, everybody's like, oh, put it back on the newsstand. Well, first off, there are no newsstands. Uh, So let's just set that aside. But also, (laughs) you know, hey, guess what? Barnes and Noble tried selling periodical comics. A lot of places have tried selling them and they don't sell because they are a collector's item, not a storytelling medium. So I don't know. You know, if you have this 40 page package that suddenly becomes something that readers want to read, um, that would be very cool. So yeah, well, well I mean, I, they are a storytelling medium, but they're a story, a, a serialized storytelling yes, medium yes, that does are, not lend itself to the newsstand. Well, it doesn't the lend itself to new readers. Newsstand. It doesn't lend itself to new readers. Well, that's why it's very interesting. Publishers uh, like TKL Studios that is actually creating these comics in in a some way almost artificially in multiple formats, including the you know. The, for for most of their series, I think for all of their series, you can get you can get it as a complete book. You can get it as a you know some mini series, six issues or more, in, in in the classic you know comic book format. Or and you can just buy it digitally, whatever you if you choose. I just think this is going to become more and more uh, a factor going forward. So people want the periodicals can get it in the form they want, and then you can buy you know if you're not interested. You don't have to worry about it. And if, if you're a complete nerd, you could just buy all three of them at once. And I'm sure there's plenty of people that do that. Binge. I don't know how many yeah. do that. There's, uh, you know what? TKO is kind of based its business model on it, and it's interesting how they're grow, how fast they're growing. So we'll see. Uh, because as you're saying, this is becoming a collector format. 
So I think it is. It, I think it is a collector format. Well, I think, I think it is. I think too, it's evolved entirely to a collector's format. I mean, I, I agree I with Kate that it's a storytelling it's medium. It's a big two, anyway, for sure. But it's a storytelling medium for people who like to collect things, and a lot of people do like to collect things. Yes, they do. In this, and particularly in this medium that we love. Yes. They really, you know, uh, and I, I, first, me personally, I, you know, I'm an accumulator. I was never. I'm not a collector. I mean, there's no rhyme or reason. I get stuff because I want it. Um, I don't care whether I have complete sets of anything or not. It's, that's not what I'm looking for. But that's me. And many of, and most people, uh, look, there are all kinds of people who buy things for all kinds of reasons. And in this business, I find the collector side of it, the need to have it in a particular format, it's really powerful draw. Yeah, it's it, the the true collector. To be to be clear. Not the um, mm-hmm. collector speculator, mm-hmm. correct? Correct. Because the collector speculator is a dead end. But the person who likes having all the comics because he likes the series, that's not a dead end. Well, I mean, we're just seeing this content boom, and I, I think just as as everything we've been talking about in this episode shows, you know, it's like the wise. There are so many streaming shows that are based on comics, and you know, yes. look, the Marvel stuff is based on. Lots of different comics, That's, of mm. course. You know, they have like 12 different names in the end credits. But, you know, things are very direct, like The Boys, like Jupiter's Legacy, like Invincible. You know, this Robert yeah. Kirkman cartoon. Yes. Yet you know, again, it's, it's based on his other, his other comic, Robert Kirkman's other comic is called Invincible. And they just did a cartoon. And it's really good, actually. And it's getting a lot of eyeballs. So, I, anyway. It's, it's a really good superhero series that, that have really is, you know, I, I guess among the newer ones, and it has a really rich and deep, you know... Well, it's uh, been around for about legacy. 20 years. I think it has been around for about 20 years, but it really has a rich and, and really complex and detailed continuity and legacy. It's a great series. Yeah. So, uh, it, but, it, this is an interesting as this side of our medium evolves. We're constantly returning to wither the the floppy, wither the comics periodical, and this question is going to be us because how we relate to it, how we use it, how we access it or don't is 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 a constantly evolving concept. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, as is the concept of NFTs and talk about speculators <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. And, there you go. You know, we're seeing more artists jump on the bandwagon, including Alex Ross. I guess he saw what people did, and then he put together his own Russell kind of uh, thing that he's selling. Uh, that, that's true. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because um, with NFTs and listeners, if you don't know what an NFT is. No, we're not going to explain it to you. <laughs> it's a non-fungible token. Google yes. it. Okay. So um, the thing is that meanwhile – uh, Marvel and DC have, you know, kind of put the word out that, you know, don't make your stuff that you did for us into an NFT without our permission. So I, I do think it's very interesting that Alex Ross did his little people thing. Um, I imagine he must have gotten permission because I don't think he wanted to take anyone off, but it's, uh, it's, it's just interesting. Well, um, I don't think Alex Ross will have any problem getting Marvel to let them him create NFTs and doing it in some sort of partnership. A, a number of comics companies I've noticed have started issuing uh, guidelines for this, including AWA, uh, Artists, Writers, and, and Artisans. They issued their own guidelines. 
Uh, I think DC already has, haven't they? Well, they said hold off until we figure this out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because, I mean, it, and there's a reason why. Because, of course, we know we stroll through Artist Alley, of course, and there's an, an endless number of iterations of, of, of copyrighted characters by artists big and small. Uh, but NFTs, even at this early stage, have they're a different ball game. They are indeed, and they're and it's a weird collector collectors. It's it's another collectible area of our business uh, that's at its in, in its infancy. But the money, even early on, is is looks uh, eye popping. So it's not surprising to me that the it reminds companies. me of Pepe Coin. I, I'm not familiar What's with what Pepe it Coin? is. Okay, <laughs> so um, if you if you've watched the uh, Matt Fury documentary feels good man mm. uh, about the creator of Pepe the Frog. Oh. One of the interesting mutations of his character that happened, but which for instance he got no money for, except they were like, "Oh, hey, you want to draw some rare puppets for us, and you can get money for your own character." Uh, is that basically somebody creating like? Well, basically, they're basically NFTs because they were like, oh, you're collecting, quote unquote, this um, crypto of a uh, rare drawing of Pepe the Frog. You know, Pepe the Frog is Homer Simpson. Pepe the Frog as, as you know, a squid, right? So, like, even though these pictures exist in the wild – um, and the rights to them for this basically NFT, uh, were not issued by Matt Fury or the artist of the piece. Um, somehow people felt like they were buying it and somebody spent like over a hundred thousand dollars for, uh, Homer Pepe. Oh, really? Yeah. And this it is was, not on the blockchain? It, it is a, it is a blockchain. It is a on crypto the blockchain. Yeah, it is okay. Then it, yeah, then it's an NFT essentially. Yeah, it is an NFT, but it's before they were calling them NFTs. Yeah, well, you know that's one thing. You know, this is obviously a fad that's going on right now, but this technology has been around oh, before yeah. this. It's been around for a while, and it'll be around after this fad uh, is done. And you know, you know, I had this will be an interview that's coming up in the beat, so a little preview. But uh, I had a great conversation with Felix Liu of Felix Comics Art. You know, he's a art rep, and he's super knowledgeable about all this. And you know, they kind of started to do NFTs, and then they were like, "Uh oh!" They saw the eco- ecological, and you know, to the be ecological honest, ecological impact is, is terrible. terrible. Um, yes, and that's it's also, but issue. not only that is you get so, you know, the ecological impact of a lot of things is terrible, but if you know, but I mean, this is, this is no, huge. I, yes, I, I know that, but, but I, I think we're a little unaware of the ecological, but it's, it's ecological damage for nothing, you know, at for least nothing. if I have a hamburger, <laughs> I got to eat a nice well, for- <laughs> you know. Um, but, um, he pointed out a, f- a few things about, anyway, they, they, you know, if you mention NFTs, you really get so much blowback on social media that you are, you know, barely survive it. 
Um, but Alex Ross obviously can survive it. But uh, he you can know, survive anything. He can. But Felix told me something pretty interesting was that the whole Beeple thing was a little bit of an inside job. Like the person who bought it actually was an investor in a company that does NFTs. So they mm. kind of invested in their own. Yeah. You know, it was yeah. it was it was a fake. They, you know, which is sixty-seven million dollars paid for this digital art. So hey, you know, but I don't I don't even know where to stand on this though, you guys. I mean, what do you think? I mean, I'd rather Alex Ross make money off of this than some you know shady i, I think artists guy. have to get in, i mean artists are going to get involved because it's there there's 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 a budding market i mean a lot of these nfts are being um uh there, i'm sure there are other marketplaces open c seems to be a big one uh, matt kent's um uh um um uh, nft uh comic strip uh, what's the name of the strip that it's based on? I'm kind of lost. Mind uh, management. My, oh yes, mind management. Uh, his like 20 what was that a 2013 graphic novel series? Um, look, he's created an NFT edit. Uh, he's acknowledged it's a bit of a fig leaf, but that's fine. He's acknowledged the uh the environmental concerns around creating NFTs, creating things on the blockchains and cryptocurrency because of the way. That, that, that cryptocurrency, uh, uh, cryptocurrencies are like Bitcoin are created and the way blockchains are maintained. They, uh, they need enormous, be, I mean, spectacularly enormous amounts of energy to do yeah. so. And this is an issue. And, um, uh, I did a story of this past week on an author at Wiley by the name of John Fisher who did an, an NFT as an author trading card. And, um, so it's a, it's a unique, immutable digital image. You can copy it and look at it, but the copies that you see are not the same thing as the image. And it is owned and exists on a blockchain lines and it can be put up to order and you can bid on it and buy it like a painting. And it sold for a certain amount of, what was it? 5.90 Ethereum, which is one of several cryptocurrencies. That you can use to buy and sell digital artifacts on OpenSea, and that and it sold for about thirteen thousand uh, dollars. All I that can say is Comic that we strip, are living in a humor dy- humor dystopia. <laughs> there you go. Matt yes. Kitt's um, Mind Management NFT sold for about uh, fifty six hundred dollars on OpenSea as so well. So he's not, you know, it's buying not, a mansion off of this. He's no, not a millionaire because of it. But it's worth something, and it's worth something in a way that I think is, was that is startling to publishers. Well, I'll say this: I've been talking to a lot of people about NFTs, and they all have some kind of sales pitch where, "Oh, this is really going to help artists," and you know, Maybe. smart contracts and all that. And you know, I think it's a lot of hooey. I really do. But you know, I wanted to go through this journey myself, and you know, a lot of the people who mint, you know, the mint the Ethereum uh, that to buy the NFTs say that they are looking to have. Um, a different standard that won't be yes. as energy attention. What's it called? Proof yes. of proof of state as opposed to proof of work. Uh, which okay, I don't know. It's proof of stake, stake, yeah. S T A K E. And you know, but as someone pointed out, uh, you know, they've been saying this all along, and they still are. You know, haven't have done these, it yet. They haven't done I, it yet. So I do, know, I do think that if cryptocurrencies are going to become some sort of standard. Uh, uh, Illegal tender. I mean, it's a incredibly volatile marketplace now, where they go, they shoot up and down. 
But I think they're going to have to deal with this energy consumption question mm-hmm. and the Absolutely. way that was was conceived of for you to mint uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, there's got to be a better way to do it. Yeah. Because the entire thing's artificial. There's no reason it has to go that way. It has to be done this way. You're absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely. It's all, it's, you know, it's all a big, it's a big con game. It's just a big, Well, I don't think it's a con game. I will say this. I don't think it's a con game. I do think it's a speculative game. Yes, a speculative game. It's super speculative. I don't think it's a con game. I think there is some measure of regulation, but not a lot. And then I am curious about, I mean, the whole thing with cryptocurrencies is that they're immutable. That they can't be changed. Now, of course, in the digital world, this That's is not, not generally how things go. Anything can be hacked. Yeah. So. Now, and, and I understand that the next gen computing, but quantum computing, uh, quantum computing, may or may not have the ability to crack the so-called immutable securities of the blockchain. So uh, we don't know. We will Some see. kid is working on it in their bedroom yes. right now. So 80,000 kids are working on it in their bedrooms right now. Now, maybe because I don't claim they're to know what I'm talking about. And they can turn it in as, as homework. Yeah. And yeah. Now, I don't claim to know what I'm talking about. So I, I'm happy to hear from people if I they're saying you don't know what you're talking about. But I'm this is my question uh, to the universe. Well, I'll say this. I, I think there's a lot of it's just the Wild West, the people who are creating this market are people who are heavy into crypto. Uh, you know, it's all on Madripoor. I'll leave it at that. It's okay. like, you know, Madripoor <laughs> Island, NFT Island, okay? Yeah, um, right. It's all pirates. Yeah, it's NFT all- WTF. We're yeah. all pirates here. <laughs> yes, exactly. So. All right. All right. New York Comic Con. Well, speaking of toilet paper. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> they don't have enough of it, and they don't have enough restrooms. They so don't we're have not allowed to talk about this anymore. They don't have enough restrooms. We're not supposed to be talking about this. Anyway, they announced today. I'm going to delete this. All right. Yeah. No. <laughs> Heidi, you were saying. You were saying, well, Heidi. Uh, you know, just they made it official. I know we talked about this last time, uh, but you know, New York Comic Con made it official that New York Comic Con is indeed going to be an in-person event in early October, and they announced a bunch of other shows as well, um, like Florida SuperCon, uh, Emerald City, C2E2, and. Um, so uh, what, the SuperCon, the Florida SuperCon. In September, uh, New York uh, in October, Emerald City in December, and uh, C2E2 in December as well. So, yeah. you know, we'll uh, see. here we go. And they also said that the metaverse will return also. Yeah, of course. For New York Comic Con. Doing so an all-metaverse event will also be taking place on June 7th to yeah. 13th with more info to come. So uh, they have basically pledged uh, reduced capacity. Uh, required face covering. Uh, they put out a call for programming. Mm-hmm. You can submit panel, panel. Well, so, they, yeah, they also say, uh, you know, required face coverings, temperature screening upon entry, yes. uh, increased sanitization and cleaning with enforced well, physical distancing. And they hands. also have a firm, no handshakes, no high fives, no hugs policy. Well, that's the same as my softball league because I started playing again on Sunday and we, can't we we they've eliminated the handshake line after the end of the game well, so, yeah. <laughs> no. so well you know after 9-11 you you had to, yeah, there you, go. You, know, you, you had to take your shoes off the airport so it's just those tiny there sacrifices good sportsmanship is contagious anyway so there you go so we 
So not only my softball league, but Reed Pop has adjusted to the new normal. So I know we talked about this a bit last time, so I don't think we need to rehash it too much. Yeah, yeah, but, but um, just, just a shout out. It, yeah, it's I mean, anybody that's attempting to do in-person events, uh, we have to pay attention to them. And, you know, just to say, I mean, I try to read what um, really level-headed experts say about things that aren't politicized before I make decisions. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if you're you're vaccinated, you're, the rates are incredibly low. But you yep. can actually still catch COVID. It's just yeah, you, you can. can get sick. You don't get that sick. Yeah. Um, you get sick. You just don't get as You don't sick. get that sick. You don't get hospital. You know, the hospitalization rate is nearly <laughs> zero. But I say nearly zero. It's like zero, 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 you know, point zero, 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 one. So, um, you know. Uh, make your own choices. Yeah, make your own informed choices. Hopefully they're informed and you do read up on the science and not fake science. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, so, yeah, thank you, Dr. Rick Oz, people. All right. So, what does it look like? Oh. Well, it's award season. Kate, uh, do you want to tell us some of the award season winners that we've had? Well, we've got some award winners and we've got some award nominees. So um, this is not going to be quick, people. Uh, so first off, let's get into the Hugo Awards. So the Hugo Award finalists have been announced. Um, the Hugo Awards, if anyone wants to know, are basically like the Oscars, only for science fiction and fantasy. So the Hugo Award for Best Graphic Story or Comic, uh, the uh, nominees include um, Marjorie Liu and Santa Takeda's Monstrous Volume 5, uh, Kieran Gillen and Stephanie Hahn's Die Volume 2. Uh, Kieran Gillen it has a second nomination for his Boom Studios title, Once in Future, with Dan Mora. Um, Fun series. Exactly. Um, There is a Marvel series written, I guess you might call it a prestige title, written by known science fiction fantasy author uh, Seanan McGuire called Ghost Spider, Volume 1, with Takeshi Miyazawa and Rosie Camp. Um, Dark Horse has one, uh, Invisible Kingdom, Volume 2 with G. Willow Wilson and Christian Ward. And, uh, you know, Abrams is in there with an adaptation of Octavia Butler's uh, Parable of the Sower. Now, that book, we've talked a lot about that book, uh, PW, and um, on this podcast. So um, that's a great slate. Um, By Darren Duffy and by John Jennings. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, My guess... If I know the Hugo people, is that it's going to either go to Parable of the Sower or Ghost Spider, and probably go to Parable of the Sower. So that's my chance. bet. You know, you get a uh, you get a, 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 the an adaptation of a book by a Hugo Award. Winner. Yeah, I think yeah. that's a nice. That's a good. Um, so there's a good chance. Yeah, but you yeah. never know because the Hugo Awards are a sign of where comics stand. And what graphic novels show up on the radar of the larger geek market outside of the comic specialists? Sure. Because the voters are just simply anyone who has a membership in that year's World Science Fiction Convention. 
Cool. All right. Okay. Next. So in uh, more elaborate uh, news, we have the Cartoonist Studio Prize. So the winners have been announced. By the um, way, that was sponsored. You know, uh, we partnered, the Beat partnered with, uh, or the Center for Cartoon Studies uh, chose the Beat as their partner for the Studio Cartoonist Prize this year. Um, um, our features editor, Avery Kaplan, was one of the judges. Uh, she did an amazing job. I, you know, Avery is incredible. Uh, so anyway, just uh, we're very proud to have oh, that's uh, great. participated uh, as the media partner for these awards. So, Okay. So. Um, the print comic of the year category went to Fights, One Boy's Triumph Over Violence by jo- Joel Christian Gill. And in the webcomic of the year category, Dog Biscuits by Alex Graham. Um, each of them will get uh, $1,000 as well as a Wacom One creative pen display. Cool. Nice. Very nice. Very so, nice. You know, it's, it's kind of a, a fun little lesser known award. For sure. Um, because... You know, there's a lot of deserving cartoonists out there who deserve recognition. Um, There have been six inductees to the uh, Will Eisner Hall of Fame for 2021. Um, So four deceased and two living. Um, Argentinian creator Alberto Breccia. uh, Archie creator Stan Goldberg. Editorial cartoonist Thomas Nast, long, long dead. But <laughs> yes, I'm but, surprised uh, he's not in. Oh, hasn't already. I been, know. I'm a little shocked. I could have been a little shocked that he's not already in. Although he was a horrible racist, so it was he's he not a good I did person, know. but he is yeah. a good but he cartoonist. Basically, invented the editorial cartoon. Didn't yeah, he? that's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, the 1800s illustrator Rudolf Topfer. I'm surprised uh, he's who, not in already. I don't know. I guess okay. it's one of those things where, like, the Hugos are working backwards. Well, and, they had to get uh, Fort Meskin in first, so. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, yes. <laughs> uh, oh, I'm sorry. Francois Mouly, uh, the yes. founder of Raw Books and Tune Books, as well as the art director for The New Yorker. Yes. Um, and uh, Golden Age Comics creator Lily Renee Phillips. Are all now in who the Hall will of be, Fame. Uh, who is still living and will be 100 years 100, old yeah. on May 12th. So, on, yeah, uh, on May, I thought it was May 2nd. Oh, maybe May it 12th. is May, May, I think May, it's 12th. May 2nd, which is my wedding anniversary. Oh. I'd just like to jump in for a second also to just, I, I think, uh, pairing together Francois Mouly, yeah, uh, the co-founder of Raw and the founder of Tomb Books and, uh, Lily Renee Phillips, uh, a pioneering, uh, art uh, creator in this business. I mean, we, it, it really, you got the, the, the trailblazer that initiated women's and one of the great women, uh, editors, uh, uh, of all time. Uh, it just seems to be just a, a, well, it a is wonderful. Great. Although, uh, yes. I could do a whole big long talk about this. So I'll just say very briefly, you know, whatever we say, oh, this person is a pioneer or a trailblazer. Um, it's just because all of a sudden we decided they would be the f- person that we said did it first because, uh, you know, uh, Allie Sloper was, mm-hmm. before Thomas Nast was a cartoon strip drawn by uh, the wife of the original cartoonist and she cool. took okay. it to uh, Marie Duval. So yeah, there's always been women in comics. In my story, I actually did say she was among a group of, of the earliest. Right. Uh, and, and I don't mean it to that because we're learning, uh, yes, every day learning. about exactly who the pioneers and trailblazers yeah. were. And she was pioneers among- and trailblazers is a plural. You don't yeah. have to be the first to be 
my, uh, my attempt was simply to, to highlight a woman that was doing it when it was tough for women to be doing this. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, and, 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 um, and she made her mark. In right. spite of everything. And she deserves not to be forgotten. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and really, uh, uh, what can you say about Francois? I think in her own way, she, no, uh, Francois is definitely a pioneer. She, she, uh, she embodies <laughs> all of these characters, <laughs> uh, um, uh, both for Raw and for Toon books, all of which are doing things, uh, that had completely changed American comics. So, uh, really comics around the world, but certainly North American comics. Okay. So, so, yes. So there are, there are, uh, 16 nominees that voters can choose amongst, uh, for the four remaining inductees to the Hall of Fame. Um, Ruth Atkinson, Dave Cockrum, Kevin Eastman, Neil Gaiman, Max Gaines, Justin Green, Moto Hagiel, Don Heck, Klaus Jansen, Jeffrey Catherine Jones, Hank Ketchum, Scott McLeod, Grant Morrison, Alex Nino, PK, P. Craig Russell and Gaspar Saladino. So, you know, those are some big names to be in competition with each yes. other. It should be very interesting. I predict that Neil Gaiman and Grant Morrison will get in on the first ballot. Could be. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't debate that. No. <laughs> I wouldn't bet against you, no. No, I don't I don't think any uh minor pandemic related kerfuffle scandal will will stop Gaiman's uh momentum. Yes. All right. So, okay, we're winding down here. Time yeah, so it's essence. time for some briefs. All right. Hey, can I mention one thing very quickly? Uh, very quickly, go to publishersweekly.com slash clamber. I have a wonderful interview, uh, uh, with, uh, New Yorker cartoonist Will McPhail. The story's called Inelegant Connections and it's about his first book-length graphic novel called In, which will be published in May by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Okay. So. Dear listeners, much as uh, we in the United States have had our own minor geek-related um, political scandals, such as when a uh, political candidate uh, was discovered to be an orc on online, um, but managed to turn it from a scandal to a fundraising bonanza, uh, Peru, which is part a large part of the Japanese diaspora, has found politicians cosplaying as anime characters in an attempt to court votes. So, there are multiple examples, one of which is that um, Hugh Romero, a politician from Peru's Christian People's Party, uh, dressed as one of the villains from Naruto Shippuden, wearing the Akatsuki (laughs) uniform. Um, His reasoning is that he wants to be a renegade ninja battling against corrupt parties that have destroyed the world, just like them. Uh, interesting. I mean, yes, to not only uh, cosplay for votes, but to cosplay as a, uh anime villain. Yes, deep cut, deep cut. And, <laughs> and meanwhile, uh, he is not... Milagros Juarez, uh, she decided to um, dress as Asuka Langley from Neon Genesis Evangelion by wearing her pilot flight suit. <laughs> During the debates? Uh, <laughs> No, not not during the debates, just during, you know, 
I campaign just, promotions. It's just a yeah. Um, so, so she dressed as Asuka Langley from Neon Genesis Evangelion and sang the theme song to the anime. <laughs> and sang the theme nice. song. Nice. Nice. Da- if there's any doubt that a politician won't do anything to get a vote. These people yes. have put the lie to that. Okay. So uh, we will see whether uh, when the next presidential election comes around, um, whether any of the candidates will decide to, you know, curry the nerd vote by cosplaying or or whether that takes place in some some far off uh, Gen Xers are the elders universe. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, we shall see. I love it. Otaku, otaku in chief. Yeah. <laughs> and um, speaking of otaku in chief, um, anime has made uh, box office records in Japan this year. So the highest grossing film in Japan ever is now, as of last year, Demon Slayer uh, Mugen Train. So it is a sequel to the popular TV TV anime uh, Demon Slayer, um, which is currently between seasons, and made became the fastest film to over the fastest film to earn over a hundred million dollars at Japanese box office, uh, number four film at the global box office, ahead of Tenant. Wow! And um, is the highest grossing film ever in Japan, and it is now coming to the United States. So. Uh, look out for that. But what makes it especially interesting is that it is not designed to be a standalone. It's not designed to be a standalone. It actually only makes sense if you watch the first season of the anime. So this means that the movie that has made the most money in Japan is one that requires you to have watched an entire season of an anime television show. Um, You know, speaking of like the nerd future is bright. Um, <laughs> we'll see how it does at at our uh, our cinemaplexes this summer. Um, but I mean, if Christopher Nolan knows that he he got uh, out bought by um, outsold by a anime sequel, I don't even know what he'll think. Well, Tenet wasn't a big hit anywhere in the world, so you know, but um. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, but usually he has the excuse of a pandemic year. But yes. when but this this kind of blows that out of the water. Yeah. All right. It's true. All okay. right. All right. Well, well that's it. it looks like we're out of time, you guys. But uh don't forget to subscribe to us and don't forget yeah. to leave us a note. And don't forget to tune back in. Because there will be more to come.